Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. This is part two of my deep dive conversation on meditation practice with Sean Murphy, Zen master, author, and SDI coordinating council member. In this part of our conversation, we learn a bit about the benefits of mindfulness and how it plays out in our work, our creativity, and our relationships. We begin to see the ways that our meditation begins to apply to all aspects of our life. What does it look like to stick with a meditation practice for the long haul, especially when there are days where it seems like nothing is happening and nothing is changing? Well, the fact is we are always changing and we're always growing. How often have you noticed that in the early springtime, suddenly there are buds on a tree and then suddenly all of nature is awash in color. And then just as suddenly the trees are bare again. I think this is what meditation practice is like. Some days it seems slow. Some days it seems like there's a dramatic shift but actually all along we've been changing and the meditation has been changing us in each breath in imperceptibly small ways that build up over time. And you are a writer and you teach writing as well. And I I imagine this, this is a good segue, huh? This is a, yeah, a good practice, uh, the artistic practice, right, of sort of expressing this kind of beauty that is all around us. Can you speak right. to can you speak to that teaching practice a little bit and how writing helps you helps you process? Yeah, you know that's another aspect of how meditation has really uh, affected my life because one of the things that gets in the way of uh, uh, of the production of any kind of art is, um, I'm sure you know this, Matt, is are those negative voices in our heads that tell us we're not good enough or this isn't good enough or, you know, we've, in terms of writing, it's blank page or blank screen syndrome. You know, we, yeah. we sit in front of the blank screen and we can't seem to start. And every time we do, there's this voice in our head, we begin we write down the the and this critical voice in our head says, oh, no, that's not good. That's been used. <laughs> you know, and then we go to well, and then the critical voice says, well, you know, that's not a good way to start. And and um, and that kind of, um, it's nothing other than a voice in our heads, and it came from somewhere in our conditioning that we received in our childhood where somehow we received the message that we weren't enough. And without some kind of intervention, many of us will believe that voice. And um, again, that simple practice of letting go of the thinking mind, or to be able to let go of certain aspects of the thinking mind, the ones that are not useful, that, uh, that's, it's like a muscle that one, one develops from meditation practice, where that thought might still arise, the negative thought might still arise, but we know how to not be dominated by it, to not believe it. And so therefore, the creative doors are open to us um, because the critical mind, when it's tamed, 
when it behaves itself is is very important for a certain point in the process where we're doing revision or we're, we're trying to create a finished product. But if the door's not open to start with, if the if the critical mind is in there from the start, then we're we're not likely to get that free creative flow happening in the first place. So meditation is also wonderful for that. And I teach writing often with my wife, Tanya, and um, we always include meditation uh, in our writing classes as just a basic part of freeing and clearing the mind and, uh, and letting our natural flow, our natural, and our natural voice, who we are naturally emerge. And we're so shy of that voice often. How can spiritual companionship help us become less shy with our mm. voice or to help us sort of root out those negative narratives, you know, that inner critic that tells us mm. that our work is not good or that what we have to say is not meaningful? Yeah, the, you know, in, in the Buddhist approach, the Zen approach in particular, um, the practice of meditation is central. And your spiritual direction is a basic part of it. Um, you know, my training, um, the way the training is handled is you do the practice, you listen to talks, you do readings to get the the theory behind it, but you also meet with your teacher. If you're in residence at a practice center, um, it's at least once a week and during retreat times, it'll be daily or even twice daily. And for, for often brief periods, it might just be a minute or two or five minutes or 10 or 15 minutes uh, at the most. It's in the context of meditation. People come from the meditation hall and uh, meet with the teacher ideally while maintaining that state of state that uh, meditative or mindful state and so you're working very precisely with certain aspects of the practice and how the human psyche works and that's what your teacher is guiding you with so that your your practice becomes more effective in a way it's a do-it-yourself method but it's your teacher is like a coach or a guide. Mm. So there's a lot of that, what you could call spiritual direction or spiritual guidance, perhaps. Um, but, uh, and your teacher's there to tell you if you've gone down a wrong track or, um, you know, if you're off base in, in how you're working with the practice. But essentially, it's a do it yourself. You sit in meditation, and if you're really serious about the practice, you'll do some retreat practice, which means you may sit for uh, a typical retreat as a week long, and, and you might sit in meditation anywhere from 8, 10, 12 hours a day and up. Um, and that's a lot of time sitting just with your own mind <laughs> in silence. And um, in fact, the retreats are usually conducted entirely in silence, except mm. for during it, except for when a teacher gives a talk or when you meet with the teacher. So <clears throat> it's it's kind of impossible to see what your mind is, is 
to not see what your mind is doing when you're just sitting there in silence hour after hour. In fact, you get really sick if you're on conditioning, you know, it's, uh, which is actually really helpful. You know, when you see that same negative thought come up for the umpteenth time, maybe you'll finally be tired of it enough to say, okay, I'm not, I'm not taking you seriously anymore. You know? <laughs> I'm not get, I'm not feeding you anymore. Yeah. You know? And if you stop feeding those, uh, those negative thoughts and attitudes, they'll slowly lose their power. You know, they may still arise from time to time, but you, you're not fooled anymore. It's like once you've been fooled by a certain kind of con man, when somebody comes to you with that same con, you'll recognize it, you know, and then there's some aspect of our thoughts that are like con, con artists, you know, mm. they want us to believe them. And they're, you know, thoughts, they're trying to protect us, right? You know, they're trying to keep us from stepping out into new and possibly dangerous territory from changing too much from destabilizing the apparent self that we already have. Um, and, uh, uh, but often it's misguided. It's like an overprotective parent, you know? How did you first come to know SDI? How did you first find SDI and how did you first get involved and how did that develop into your current role as a coordinating council member? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's funny the way it happened. Um, I, uh, I joked for a number of years that I was SDI's token Buddhist. And, <laughs> and of course there were other, there were some other Buddhist practitioners. Um, but, um, for a while there, um, it began, might've been in, uh, six years ago or so when, um, Mirabai Starr, who also lives in Taos and is a good friend of mine, um, she was invited to do a, um, uh, to guide a desert pilgrimage for one of SDI's journeys. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Liz, who was the director at the time, um, uh, Liz Bud-Elman, um, asked Mirabai if she knew anybody who, um, who taught meditation or could come along uh, and, and be the meditative, provide the meditative grounding for that part. Um, you know, Mirabai essentially was guiding the scholarly part, and she was the lead person. But... Uh, they wanted somebody to hold down the contemplative meditative side. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so Mirabai immediately thought of me and invited me to come along. So we did that 12 mm, day journey. Maybe it was to, um, to several um, holy sites in the deserts in Arizona and several mona uh, monastic sites we stayed at and, um, and then it just kind of grew from there. Um, uh, I was asked to um, to apply to do um, uh, one of the to do a presentation at the next SDI conference. Of course, it's an application process, so it wasn't an automatic shoe in or anything. But Liz suggested I might apply, and. Uh, to do that, and I think I did that several years. Did uh, did um, those kinds of uh, brief seminars that we do in 
uh, in the conferences. There's an afternoon or a morning breakout session. And, um, and then in Santa Fe, last time we had a Santa Fe conference a few years ago, um, uh, Roshi Joan Halifax was presenting and uh, I was there doing one of those afternoon or morning presentations and she asked if I'd stand in for her. Um, she had some other, some reason that she couldn't do the panel on the final day. So I sat in and participated in, in the panel with uh, uh, Richard Rohr. And then Liz asked if I do an article for Presence, uh, an interview with Roshi Joan, and so I did that. And then it just kind of grew. And um, so when there was a spot open on the coordinating council, um, uh, Kristen Hobby suggested that I apply. And uh, and voila, here we are. I've been on the council for about three years, and it's um, it's quite an honor, but also an enjoyment. It's a great pleasure to to serve with the other people on the council and and help guide the vision for SDI. What a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, well, you're a pretty fun group. Uh, I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. And I'm certainly grateful for your work and presence with SDI. Sean Murphy teaches meditation, creative writing, and literature for University of New Mexico Taos, and has taught and presented on Zen practice and meditation for over 20 years. Sean is the recipient of a 2018 National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in Creative Writing, and is a fully sanctioned Zen teacher in the American White Plum lineage. He is the founder of the Sage Institute for Creativity, Consciousness, and Environment, and he also serves on SDI's Coordinating Council. You can learn more about Sean's work at his personal website, murphyzen.com and sagetaus.com. Support for this podcast comes from SDI Press, announcing its newly published book, Spiritual Direction Supervision, Principles, Practices, and Storytelling by Lucy Abbott Tucker an innovative full-color workbook designed to support the care and growth of your spiritual companionship practice, representing the best thinking of master teacher Lucy Abbott Tucker. We invite you to explore her principles, practices, and stories as you deepen your own approach to spiritual direction, companionship, and the supervision process. Learn more at sdistore.org. We'd like to hear more from you in regards to the deepening of meditation practice what are some of the next fruits that develop by sticking with a practice one of the basic uh, ways in which one grows if one really takes on meditation as a serious practice is uh, one feels this tremendous gratitude as i say it gave me the reins to my life yeah um, it gave me it gave me a path that I could find my way through the through the kind of wilderness of human life in an effective way, and it naturally begins to grow out of the gratitude one feels that one wants to help others. 
um, it said in in Zen that um, that practice develops two uh, aspects: wisdom and compassion, and they're like wings of a bird. If one has one but not the other, the bird can't fly. So, so out of one's uh, compassion that grows naturally from practice, one wants to do something to help. And obviously the world is in a bit of difficulty at this moment. And a lot of the problem, to my way of looking at it, is um, humans are just not conscious enough yet. We're not conscious enough of our interdependence with our environment, with the other creatures that share the environment, with the earth, with other people. We still are, we're, we're too wrapped up in our egos, we're too wrapped up in strife. And human consciousness does grow as a species. Um, you know, people sometimes doubt that, but it was, what, only 500 years ago or so that that the majority, if not nearly all so-called civilized countries believed in the divine right of kings to rule, and there was no such thing as democracy. Mm-hmm. Go back 200 years ago, slavery was legal in many parts of the earth. I understand that there is still slavery in underground forms, but it's not legal anywhere. Um, You know, it was not long ago that um, when I was born, there was still segregation. I was born in 1957, and and, uh, when we moved to Miami, Florida in 1960 or 61, um, there was still segregation. Mm -hmm. So um, human consciousness can and does grow and develop. And um, so my particular way of serving is to uh, try to make these tools for the growth of human consciousness. Meditation and mindfulness are the big tools that have been developed for the growth of human consciousness because when, because they lead to the understanding, the direct experience of oneness and wholeness and interdependence. And, when one has really deeply experienced that, one cannot carry on uh, greedily wanting to use the resources of the earth, for instance, as though there were no, um, as a there as though they were endless and limitless. Uh, one cannot go on ignoring the plight of people who don't have as much as we do, etc. Um, so. Yeah, so the Sage Institute was founded out of that impulse to make these practices of meditation and mindfulness more widely available. Uh, I started in 2008, and it's it's grown into where our primary flagship program is uh, a meditation leader training program where we train people who already have are practitioners and have meditative practice. But we train them not to be spiritual teachers. We can't do that in a short training. But what we do is we train them to share the practice that they already have with others. And um, these are people from all sorts of backgrounds. Our, one of our first graduates was, uh, was a former uh, Episcopal bishop who had been a meditation practitioner for several years, and uh, for a number of years. 
and uh, and wanted to share share this in his work with with uh, Christian congregations. And um, so we're we call ourselves a secular program. You could say just as easily that we're an interfaith program. It's, yeah. um, we take these tools of meditation and mindfulness have been very highly developed in Buddhism, but are in no way limited to that. Um, so it's a bit like um, part of the notion for how to handle it was a bit like seeing how yoga has become in, the, in this country. When I first took my first yoga class, I was 19. It was in the 1970s. It was taught by somebody in a turban and a white dhoti, and it all seemed very exotic. And mm-hmm. now here we are, what, 40 years later or something. And, uh, and it's become very mainstream. You know, it's people of any religious, ethnic, or political persuasion in any part of the country can can find a yoga class to go to, and it's not going to look that foreign. Maybe somebody at the end might say namaste, or maybe not. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so it's become very widely available and acculturated, and um, and it's lost that, that sense of the um, foreign that immediately made it seem strange to people. And I thought, you know, yoga has been so successful in that way. Of course, your average yoga teacher is not a spiritual teacher. They've been, right. They have training in the practices. Yeah. So what do you think about the proliferation of meditation, you know, in the workplace or the various apps you can get on your phone? It seems like meditation is kind of having a moment right now. Um, if one could critique that a lot of that is is pretty shallow or lacking the spiritual component what would what do you can you share a little bit about your thoughts on that um of course it's some sometimes these practices in the popular form are sometimes criticized for not being deep enough or not authentic enough but um if it if they help reduce a person's suffering and make their lives more successful, great. And they also provide an entry level for those people who do want to explore more deeply and discover the spiritual dimensions of these practices. That goes for yoga too. Most people who come to yoga just want to feel better. And that's great. Um, It's a great service to help people feel better and improve their health and well-being. And it's also an entry level for people who want to learn more about the philosophy and other practices that go with, with yoga. So one of the things that I've begun to understand about meditation is just, uh, you know, for, for what you were just describing in regards to early practitioners who just want to feel better and reduce their anxiety, uh, that that is really important and will, probably spiral into other acts of service and compassion for others. And, you know, one of the key things about it is that, you know, if you can't practice self-compassion, you know, you are, you become limited in being able to practice compassion for others. And so uh, I think, you know, we all have to start somewhere and those, uh, you know, through yoga or through meditation, uh, you know, taking care of our bodies and our minds and our hearts enables us to, begin to see ourselves as interconnected. And so it's really important and vital work. We in the West, I think, 
partly because of our emphasis on individuality, you know, cultures have not, past cultures were, had much more of an ethic of cooperation because they had to, to survive. And we've developed this ethic of, you know, everybody individually having to find their path and invent their path and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and all of that. And there's a lot of that that's wonderful. I'm, I'm very happy for the freedoms that that, that that kind of individuality has given me and cultures in which there isn't so much individuality, they have their own drawbacks. But the particular shadow of that individuality is, um, is we, ha- we often have these, um, we have trouble loving ourselves. And underneath that, I suspect there's this doubt that, that I, as an individual, all by myself, can somehow figure out how to live effectively. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, some psychologist brought this up to the Dalai Lama once in a conference. Uh, what about uh, the, you know, how do, how do you deal in Buddhism with, with self-hatred or, or negative self-talk, negative self-thinking? And the Dalai Lama was baffled. Uh, he was astounded to find out that people in the West often had this affliction. It's not something that people, he was accustomed to knowing in people from Tibet. They didn't have any problem with holding themselves in um, compassion and love. Um, So it's a peculiarly Western affliction that that we often have these deep self-doubts, maybe even going into self-hatred with some with some people, and uh, and it's uh, it's definitely something we have to overcome. And uh, meditation practice is a wonderful tool for that as well. And we're never going to be happy if we don't overcome that. And if we don't have some modicum of stability and happiness in our life, then any attempts that we have to help others or to help the world are likely to be off balance. Is there, is there anything else that uh, you would like to share that we haven't talked about yet? Hmm. feels pretty complete, Matt. I've really yeah. enjoyed talking to you about all of these factors. I, I just encourage people who have spiritual bents and spiritual yearnings, and even those who are working with a spiritual director or companion, uh, Meditation, a regular practice of meditation can add so much to the mix because it gives you a way of working directly with your own mind. Uh, And it's just kind of unparalleled for undoing the conditioning that stands between us and the spiritual life. Hmm. Well, I've been, I'm a relatively early practitioner of meditation it's been maybe a couple of years and uh, i know i'm starting to experience some of those first first fruits as you described yes a lot of it is just showing up and feeling like well nothing's happening (laughs) but i sat here Uh, right but it can uh, be slow yeah oftentimes people will experience a lot of early fruits, right, almost right away in the first few months, they'll notice themselves getting calmer and less reactive. But then the deeper, the deeper effects can take some years to, to manifest. And 
there can be flat periods where, like you say, you wonder whether anything is is happening, but something is happening all along the way, and that kind of steadiness and patience are what's needed to to experience the the deeper fruits of it. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes my university students, especially, they're like, you know, I'll say, well, meditation really gets great after five years, and then it really gets even better after ten years, and they'll think, <laughs> oh my god, you know, because they're they're thinking in terms of like what they, you know, going four years to get a college degree and then right. it's finished. But it's a different thing. Those five years or 10 years are going to go by anyway. 20 years <laughs> will go by, 30 years will go by. You just keep meditating. And, uh, it, you know, it's grasping after the goal doesn't work in meditation anyway. Trying to grasp after the fruits doesn't work. You, hmm. it's, like, it's like physical exercise. You just keep doing it. And uh, a certain percentage of the time you'll enjoy it and it'll seem to go well. And every once in a while, there's going to be that spell where, you know, you're tired and you don't want to exercise or where, you know, your mind won't settle and it's difficult, but if you're meditating, but you just keep with it, you just stay with it. And, you know, it takes a while for a tree to bear fruit. If we're going to Mm. use that metaphor, you know, you got to give it some time to grow. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. To learn more about spiritual companionship and ways that you can plug in and join our community, visit us at our website at www.sdiworld.org.